What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. This is not your ordinary deck of playing cards. These cards contain 52 unsolved cases, and with every hand that's played, the stakes are unusually high. They've been dealt to inmates across the nation, and investigators are hoping their tips will stack the odds in favor of the house. Now it's your turn. These victims have been dealt an unfair hand, and it's up to you to deal justice. Somebody, somewhere, has information that could be investigators' ace in the hole. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 1 of Dealing Justice. I'm Jennifer Dubasek. And I'm Lori Jennings. And in today's episode, we're going to be learning about the baffling and tragic disappearance of 17-year-old Brittany Drexel. Brittany disappeared while on spring break in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina in 2009. This story is every parent's worst nightmare and a cautionary tale for the rest of us. As always, we would love to see the day when there are no faces to put on the cold case playing cards. But until that day comes, we will continue telling these stories in pursuit of dealing justice. It's time for us to solve these cases one card at a time. This is Season 2, Episode 1, The Brittany Drexel Case, Queen of Diamonds, South Carolina Deck. This episode of Dealing Justice brings us to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, where fun in the sun becomes a mystery in the shadows for this teenage spring breaker. Brittany Drexel was born in Rochester, New York on October 7, 1991. I'm looking at a photo of her as a baby. She's smiling ear to ear, wearing a white frilly dress covered in lace and propped against a blue backdrop with a white stuffed bunny by her side. You can hardly tell it in this photo, but Brittany was born with PHPV. It's a rare congenital developmental anomaly of the eye. Here's Dawn, Brittany's mom. She had multiple surgeries on that one eye, but... Uh, she can only see shadows out of her right eye. I know a lot of people have seen her as wearing contacts, but that's the reason why she had those. Brittany's biological father's name was John. Don married Chad Drexel early on, and shortly after, Chad officially adopted Brittany. Together, Don and Chad had Marissa and her younger brother, Camden. Brittany was the big sister, and she filled that role well. Her family meant a lot to her, her sister and brother. She always looked out for them. She was fun, outgoing, and confident, and she wasn't afraid to speak her mind. 
Brittany was not afraid of much. She she was feisty. She didn't take nothing from nobody. No, she didn't take crap from anyone. The family went on to live a fairly traditional life in the suburbs of Rochester, New York. She had grandparents on both sides that were heavily involved in her life, and family meant so much to Brittany. We were very close knit family. So um, she was very close to them, cousins. Brittany was a fun-loving kid growing up. Brittany seemed to have checked all the boxes for living a happy teenage life. Brittany liked to joke around a lot. She loved to hang out with her friends. Brittany just liked to joke around. She liked to make you laugh. She liked to play soccer. She played soccer from five years old. That was her game. She scored a lot of goals. She was really good. One of my proudest moments of her is just watching her play soccer. She was the fastest one on that field, and she loved the game. She was just amazing. I was just so, so proud of her. She was a great soccer player, had tons of friends, a boyfriend of three years, a close family around her. But in 2008, when Brittany was 16, the family dynamic changed. January of the year 2009, Chad and I were going through a divorce. Brittany kind of felt left out. She was dealing with a lot. In 2009, Brittany was a 17-year-old junior at Gates Chilai New York High School, where she was a star soccer player. Major changes within the family unit affect everyone. As expected, Brittany was struggling to cope, and Brittany was feeling the pressure of life. Brittany, she was dating John. I know they would have some disagreements. I had endometriosis. And I was on pain medication. One day while I was at work, Brittany ended up taking some of my pain medicine. It was probably to get the attention of her boyfriend at the time. Ended up going to the ER. You know, I said, I'm not going to lose my child this way. I wanted her to go ahead and speak with somebody. And after that happened, she wasn't wanting to go to school. So she was going through a lot. It was her boyfriend, kid, and I going through our divorce. And probably around the end of March, yeah, end of March, Brittany started asking me if she could go to Myrtle Beach. Brittany approached her mom, Dawn, and asked for permission to road trip over 800 miles with a group of friends from Rochester, New York, to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina for spring break. She just kept asking me from that point on if she could go to Myrtle Beach. I said. You need to get your grades up, and there were certain things that she had to do to go ahead and do that. And then her prom was also coming up. So in between all this, we were getting her ready for prom, getting her ready for her soccer season, and things like that. But Brittany really wanted to go. There were several groups of friends that were going, and she didn't want to miss out. Brittany tried all the usual tactics to convince her mom to let her go. But Dawn refused. Dawn says it wasn't just her brain that told her it was a bad idea. She felt it in her spirit. I knew something was going to happen to her. As soon as she asked me if she could go, and and I told her no, because I told her, I said, Brittany, I don't know the people you're going with. I said, there's no parental supervision. And I said, something's going to happen to you. Nothing's going to happen to me, Mom. She goes, why won't you just let me go? So Brittany did what teenagers do. She got mad. For the next few weeks, things at home were tense. There were arguments, and although Brittany tried her best, Dawn wasn't giving in. Dawn empathized with her daughter. She knew things had been tough for the kids over the past few months as they were dealing with the separation, but she simply didn't think letting Brittany go with a group of friends to Myrtle Beach was a good idea. 
This is one of those instances where mom really did know best. If only Brittany would have realized that. Wednesday, April 22nd, 2009. So it's the day of Brittany leaving for Myrtle Beach. That day, Brittany was supposed to start a day program so that she could go ahead and get her schoolwork done part of the day. And then, you know, speaking with her counselor and things like that, just to help her get through, you know, to the end of her school year and, you know, get the work caught up. And she was really upset with me. And she's like, Mom, she goes, I'm going to go to Myrtle Beach. To Brittany, you're not going. I said, we're going to talk to this, you know, this lady today and to get you into this program so that you be senior next year. You're going to start your school. You're strong. And she was really upset with me. And she's like, I'm going to Myrtle Beach. And we sat in the car. My parents were with me at that time. So we were all in the car. And Brittany, she called me every name in the book. Never did this to me before. She was so adamant about going on this vacation. She was still really mad. And Brittany figured it was her spring break and she wanted to get away just to get away from everything. After Brittany lost yet another argument with her mom, Dawn, she asked her if she would drop her off at her boyfriend, John's house. So we told her, yeah, we dropped her off. And me and my parents went out to eat. Brittany had called me still begging me to to go to Myrtle Beach. I told her no. Brittany seemed to have resigned herself to the fact that spring break in Myrtle Beach just wasn't going to happen. So she offered her mom another alternative to getting out of the house for spring break, yet staying close to home. She called me back one more time after that, and she said, Mom, since it's my spring break and you're not going to let me go to Myrtle Beach, can I stay at a friend's house for a couple of days, get away from the house or whatever? Dawn was much more comfortable with that proposal, but there was one condition. I told her, I said, well, as long as I speak with a parent, I said, um, you know, that would be okay. So Dawn, having spoken with a parent, well, what she thought was a parent, gave her blessing to Brittany spending her spring break at a friend's house. What was really happening was Brittany pulled a typical teenage stunt. The parent that Dawn thought she spoke with that night was really a friend of Brittany's posing as a parent. Brittany was actually on her way to Myrtle Beach with a group of friends. John wasn't going to go to Myrtle Beach, but he did agree to keep her secret as long as she promised to text him the entire time she was there. So I'm in touch with her Thursday and texted or called a couple of times, you know, and I didn't think nothing of it. Thought she was at her friend's house just after what she was doing. Thursday, April 23rd, 2009. Brittany and her group of friends had arrived in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. They were staying at the Bar Harbor Hotel. This is a typical spring break hotel. It was on the ocean, but no frills. Perfect for a group of girls who were on their first spring break trip and ready to have a good time. And it sounds like they had a great time at first. Their first night in Myrtle Beach, they went to a local nightclub called Kryptonite. Brittany was texting her boyfriend, John, and giving him a play-by-play of the entire night. And it was clear things weren't going as planned. From what I've heard from John, they were just being really nasty to her. The group of girls that Brittany had went to Myrtle Beach with wasn't her usual core group of friends. They were more like her B-squad friends. The details aren't clear, but we do know that Brittany wasn't feeling entirely welcome with this group of girls. 
Luckily, Brittany had another friend from Rochester who was also in Myrtle Beach for spring break at the same time. His name was Peter, and he was staying with a group of friends at the Blue Water Resort, which was around a mile and a half south of Brittany's hotel. Now, some of the guys in this friend group were older and way more experienced in club life than Brittany and her friends. She went to Club Kryptonite that night. Her friend Peter's down there. Her friend Peter is a club promoter, so he gets in VIP at a lot of clubs. She was seen drinking in that club. My daughter was only 17. Friday, April 24th, Brittany spent the day laying in the sun and playing volleyball on the beach. In pictures, she's sitting on a beach towel rocking a hot pink bikini and a big smile. But all the while, she was texting her boyfriend back home, John, telling him things were getting tense with the other girls. Now, one thing that makes perfect sense is that Brittany left without telling her mom, so she couldn't ask her mom for money to help fund the trip. Dawn says this may have played a part in her feeling unwelcomed from the other girls. Brittany didn't bring a lot of money down there with her because no one knew she was even going there. She had a little bit of money in her account, but not a lot. She didn't have a lot of money, so they probably felt like they had to feed her and and this, that, and the other. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I wasn't there. The cattiness between the girls and Brittany continued. And according to Dawn, it was escalating. I believe Friday night, the kids started getting really mean to her. So Brittany was dealing with the girl drama at the Bar Harbor Hotel by leaving and spending time with Peter and his friends at the Blue Water Resort. So she would bounce between the two hotels whenever the girls were giving her a hard time. Brittany, I believe, had walked down the boulevard. I just, I can't picture it, (laughs) you know, just because I had to bring her everywhere that she went. It's now Saturday, April 25th. I had called her because I was out with Marissa, who is her sister. She was only about 11 at the time, but she played soccer too, so we were going out to get her soccer cleats. So, you know, I called her and I said, Brittany, do you like these soccer cleats? She's like, yeah, I like them. I said, okay, I'm going to get them. And I asked her what she was doing later, and she goes, oh, we're just going to, we're at the beach. She wasn't lying. She just didn't specify that the beach she was really at was 800 miles away. I'm thinking, you know, it's Charlotte Beach in Rochester because it was like 80 degrees that day and it was hot. So I asked her, I said, well, what are you going to do later? She goes, I don't know. We're going to probably hang out here for a while and then we're going to go back to my friend's house and and watch a movie. And I said, well, I am going to a friend of our family, really close friend of our family for a cookout. And I said, I will call you when I get back to the house. She was like, okay. Then her last words to me were, I love you, mom. I'll see you tomorrow. This was the last time that Dawn would ever hear Brittany's voice. Supposedly she was with Peter all day and his friends at the beach. He had dropped her off at her hotel. Well, I guess she left a couple of things in the vehicle. Um, and uh, Peter had texted her shortly after, dating that she had left her flip-flops or something in the car, and that they were trying to make plans of what they were going to do that night. That night, Brittany walks a little over a mile from her hotel at the Bar Harbor to meet up with Peter and his friends at the Blue Water Resort. After hanging out for about 10 minutes, Brittany tells the group that she's walking back to the hotel. Now, that is a short amount of time to stay, considering you just walked over a mile to get there. 
But what had happened was she had borrowed one of the girl's shorts, apparently without asking her. And the girl called to tell her to bring the shorts back to the Bar Harbor Hotel. We know Brittany left the Blue Water Resort at 8.45. A, because she's seen leaving at that time by the Blue Water Resort security camera. And B, at 8.58, she texted John telling him she was walking back to the hotel and she was packing up and would probably just go to bed. The plan was to leave in the morning and head back to Rochester, but John clearly was surprised to hear that her plans were to go to bed. He texted Brittany back and asked, simply, why? Now, in order to understand what happens next, you have to know that Brittany had been texting John with minute-by-minute updates the entire time she was in Myrtle Beach. So about 15 minutes later, when John got no response, he got nervous. And when 30 minutes had slipped by with no response, John was in a full-on panic. He texted Brittany back and told her if she didn't text him immediately, he was calling her family. Saturday night, Dawn was at a family cookout in Rochester. Nothing was out of the ordinary, and she had no idea anything was amiss with her daughter. Probably about 9.30, I was getting the kids ready for bed. John calls me and says, Brittany's in Myrtle Beach, and they can't find her. And I'm like, what? I said, oh my God, because she's never, ever, I never not trusted her. She, she was always, like, around me or in communication with me. So I couldn't believe that she went. And I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe she up and did this when I told her she couldn't do it. When I had gotten the phone call from John, I called her biological father, John, and told him what was going on. And then I called Tad and told him what was going on. And my parents. I was so frantic at that point, I went ahead and called the Monroe County Sheriff's Office because I didn't know how to get a hold of anybody in Myrtle Beach. It was a 14-hour drive. With Brittany's family being in New York, they knew they couldn't get to Myrtle Beach quickly. So they got in touch with John Hahn, a very good friend of Brittany's who was in the military stationed in North Carolina at the time. He could get to the Myrtle Beach Police Department much quicker. And John Hahn is the one who officially filed Brittany's missing person report. So John went to the hotel where they were staying at, which was the Bar Harbor. The kids came strolling in that drove her down there in the hotel. And he had asked them, he's like, where's Brittany? And they're like, Brittany who? These kids acted like they didn't even know her. The Myrtle Beach police gave John, all of her belongings, you know, which were a couple bags. Brittany had had her purse and things on her. I don't know what else was in there, but he had gotten her bags. They just gave them to John to give to me when I got there. So during that time, we kept calling the kids, calling the kids. Peter, he would answer the phone. Every time I called, the other kids wouldn't even answer their phone. We kept calling Brittany's phone up until it went directly to voicemail. There was nothing. We were just listening to voicemails. I didn't sleep at all that night. Sunday, April 26. I got packed up so I could go down and look for her in, in Myrtle Beach. So we left Rochester in the wee hours of the afternoon. 
it took us 18 hours to get there because my parents are, you know, all of us were so upset. From that point, because it was spring break and everything, it was crazy. All the way down, I think all the way down to Myrtle Beach, we had tons and tons of phone calls, her friends calling me, crying. We had people texting us. I would get a phone call, and as soon as I was done with that, when there was another call waiting, it was just the the ride down there was just unbelievable. And then as soon as I got down to Myrtle Beach, I went straight to the media and I played for anybody that you know, if they seen her or anything to, to call me. I knew if I kept her out in the media, you know, maybe somebody would see her. While Donna is processing the nightmare and looking for Brittany, the police begin their search. They found security footage from the Blue Water Resort after Brittany was seen on the hotel camera leaving she wasn't seen again on any other surveillance camera. Although traffic cameras caught her going to the hotel, she wasn't seen walking back. Shortly after we got down there, we walked from where the Bar Harbor was to the Blue Water, and it was about a good 30, 35-minute walk. And when the police pinged her cell phone, the mystery only deepened. The report said on the night she went missing at 927, Brittany's cell phone pings off a tower seven miles south in the opposite direction of her hotel, which was her destination. At 11.58, her cell phone pings off a tower 50 miles south, and then, silent, her phone goes off the grid. While Brittany's family was in a panic and positive that she was in grave danger, the police were not so sure. They have a teen who left home without her parents' consent to drive 14 hours to spring break in Myrtle Beach. Was her plan to run away the whole time? They were guarded with their assumptions, and Brittany's family was frustrated. They listed her as an endangered runaway. And I had to fight with them just to have them put her as endangered missing. So that was something within itself, because I'm like, look, I said, my daughter didn't run away. Something is very wrong. I said, I just talked to my daughter on Saturday. She would not have run away. She's her little brother, her little sister, my parents. I mean, there was no way. Here's Kim. She's former law enforcement and a missing persons advocate. The fact that Brittany was also 17 years old and came across multiple state lines. Yes, in South Carolina, at that time, 17 was considered an adult. And that's how they were looking Brittany was by the age of South Carolina, where she was from New York. She should have been looked at as a minor. Here's Brittany's mom, Dawn. Maybe two weeks in, we went and sat down with the police like we did every day. And they told us that they were deeming this case as a homicide. Oh, my God. Me and John left there in tears. We were just, how do you know this? How can you tell us that? Our daughter isn't alive. We were down there. God, I'll tell you, for about two months, we went to Georgetown. We passed out flyers there. We were in Myrtle Beach passing out flyers. We'd hang them up on the boulevard. They'd be taken down. Then we'd go back and hang them up again. And every day I met with the Myrtle Beach Police Department, every single day. That's what we did for two months. There was multiple searches done down in the McClellanville area, horses, ATVs, they had helicopters. They did a huge, huge ground search. 
you know, of most of that area down where they believe she went missing due to her last cell phone ping. I would contact law enforcement every day, and then it led to every other day, and then it went to weeks, and then it went to months. And now you're getting into 2010. On June 23rd, 2010, Gates Chilai, New York High School, announced Brittany Drexel's name alongside her classmates at what would have been her high school graduation. In 2016, seven years after Brittany's disappearance, the FBI wanted to talk to Dawn. We were brought down to Myrtle Beach and we were, you know, sat in a room and basically they just told us that she was in this house. She was put in a human trafficking situation and there was multiple men raping her, tried to escape. And they pistol whipped her and beat her and then shot her. And me as her mother sitting in there with my attorney, everyone else that was in the room, I couldn't even talk. I was just sobbing. After speaking with Dawn, the FBI held a press conference and announced that the investigators were now investigating a homicide and they believed Brittany was dead. Court documents revealed that an informant told investigators that Brittany was abducted, gang raped, shot to death, and thrown into an alligator-infested swamp. The person of interest was a South Carolina man who denies knowing anything about Brittany Drexel's disappearance, even after failing a polygraph. The person who named him claimed Brittany was abducted and that he saw her in a drug stash house in the area of McClellanville, South Carolina, which is about an hour south of Myrtle Beach. He claimed he saw the person of interest sexually abusing Brittany. The details of this allegation caused a media frenzy, and the horrific details were unbearable for her family. Drexel was last seen leaving the Blue Water Hotel in Myrtle Beach on April 25, 2009. Authorities held a press conference in June saying Drexel was held against her will and eventually killed after vanishing, but her body was never found. The FBI agent testified that several witnesses have told them Drexel's body was put into a gator pit. However, he says investigators have searched the stash house and several of the more than 40 alligator ponds in the area, but have not found her body. The FBI agent also... Shortly after they had come out with that, I had found out from someone that's very much in the missing person world, she could not believe what they said. She said, I have never seen a case like this. She says, they don't ever do this in a case, ever. Here's Kim. We heard from her earlier. She's former law enforcement and missing persons advocate. And that broke air. Even just normal citizens couldn't believe what was being said. I've never seen it done like that before. This is all based off of the jailhouse rat testimony. And that's a hell of a vision to give a mother. Like many families we speak with, it was hard for Dawn and the rest of her family to accept that there would be no answers. April 25th, 2022 marks 13 years since Brittany vanished. To date, no one has been charged directly in connection with Brittany's death or disappearance. Brittany's family has been through hell, but Dawn says she's never giving up. She is currently working with law enforcement and other advocates who are dedicated to finding Brittany. I'm hoping that this is the year that it will be solved. I'm hoping they're getting very close to doing what they need to do. 
I'm done with the bullshit. I'm done with the lies. I'm done with the smoke and mirrors. I want my daughter found, and I want the person who has done this brought to justice. Our main goal is to find Brittany and lay her to rest. It's just ridiculous. This should have never taken as long as it has taken. It's going to be 13 years this year. In Myrtle Beach, under a cherry tree, overlooking the water, there is a remembrance stone in Brittany's honor. It simply reads, when the world says give up, hope whispers one more time. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Brittany Drexel, please contact the Myrtle Beach Police Department at 843-918-1000 or call the FBI tip line at 1-800-CALL-FBI. If you or someone you know is in crisis, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255 or text HELLO to 741-741. Both services are free and available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. All calls are confidential. Thank you so much for joining us on this first episode of our season two. We are so happy to be back and we're so thankful that you are listening and hopefully we can bring some sort of closure. And if anyone knows anything, we just ask that you come forward. So let's just dive right in and talk about the suspects. First of all, I think that this case is just crazy. I think it's every parent's nightmare, you know, every every mom's nightmare because We've all been there. I mean, how many of us have lied to our parents even growing up as, you know, we're adults and we know that kids do those kind of things. And I know my daughter's probably done that. I mean, I think everybody, it's relatable. You've always told your mom somewhere you're not supposed to be and went there. And who thinks that you're going to get killed when you go to, you know, on spring break? I don't think anybody thinks that, let alone a 17-year-old girl who thinks that she's just not going to come home. And I think it's just so sad as a mom for Dawn who, you know, had that feeling and didn't want her to go and told her no and did everything she could. But even before we get to the suspects, the, the people that went with her, that's what I find most disturbing. Dawn has never talked to any of even, I mean, a couple of them were a couple of girlfriends. And granted, they weren't the A-list friends that she always hung around with, but Dawn knew who they were. It's just odd to me that teenagers aren't like mourning with the mom as well. That would be interesting. We should note that we've tried to reach out to all of them. We did. And I think that sometimes, you know, I also try to empathize with the fact that who knows what happened out of the gate and how they felt and if they felt accused. I can't imagine going on spring break with a friend and having them disappear. Even if, you know, I think that throughout this, it was seems apparent and everything, everybody you and I have talked to that Brittany just felt on the outside of their friend group. But who knows? And also, these are 17 and 18-year-olds. This is the way life goes. This is what happens. You know, that's how sometimes girls can be. I'm sure that's pretty traumatic to go on spring break with your friend and then have her go missing. Maybe they didn't think at that point that something had happened to her. Maybe they thought, okay, she just had drinks or did something crazy and wild or name it. I just think at that age, I wouldn't, my mind would absolutely not go to somebody has kidnapped her or killed her. I'm sure that there was a lot going through their minds. Right. But now who are the suspects? This is what makes this case so crazy. So Brittany goes missing. 
And again, when we talk about the fingers pointing, one of the things that kept popping up was always trace it back to the last place she was. Brittany went to her friend Peter's hotel room. She went there and that was the last place that she had been seen. So Peter officially, besides the surveillance camera, Peter was the last person to officially see Brittany. Yeah, I mean, that knew her. I'm assuming that, you know, other people that she was walking out of the hotel. But, you know, I think a lot of people at first really questioned him. But we should say that nothing ever came out of that. Nothing was ever found or has, has surfaced as far as we've heard from anything. So, you know, some people thought that. Dawn thought that she had maybe been trafficked. There was talk that she had gotten a business card from somebody at the nightclub the first night that she was there. Now, we should say, too, that Brittany wanted had dreams of modeling. She was into cosmetology. She cared about... She was a beautiful girl. Yeah, absolutely. You could see that happening. So I think that, um, you know, people thought, okay, that she was a prime suspect for somebody to be trafficked. Or did somebody lure her there? I think that as a parent or the loved one of anybody who goes missing, that there's really you start pulling the thread to anybody that was around them. But I think that for a while there that, you know, maybe being trafficked was something that surfaced. And then came the allegation from a jailhouse informant who came forward and said that he actually had seen Brittany get killed. Pretty much what the FBI announced publicly is what the informant said that he saw. Exactly. So we're not naming that suspect right now, and we're really trying not to name full names of people. And if we give you the first name, it's just going to be super confusing. It's just basically a jailhouse informant came forward and said, hey, I know what happened to to Brittany. So according to him, he had went to a drug house, a known drug house. And then when he showed up there, there was a girl tied up and he witnessed her being raped. Now, in different stories, he talks about over the course of a couple of days that he had left and came back and that she was being sexually abused by several people there. And then he said that she, while he was there, she tried to escape and she went to run off and she ran out of the house and he heard two um, gunshots. So he assumed that. And then he told police that she was wrapped in a carpet and that he was told that she was thrown in the swamp which was known to have alligators in it. So the conversation was, how do we get rid of this body? Let's wrap it up in a carpet and throw it into the swamp. That is what the jailhouse informant had told police. And then there was also talk that made it to the police. There was a father and son that was there and partaking in all of this. Yeah, I mean, it sounds pretty much like she was tortured. That's just a crazy, crazy story. I don't know about you, but when I heard about the swamp, the alligators, you know, that he threw her in there, it's just like, how more horrific could this story get from a 17-year-old on spring break? And then here you go. It gets 10 times worse than I think you could ever imagine. Yeah. Well, and especially when you hear some of the stories, I mean, like they, like you could hear in Dawn's voice when, when the FBI are first telling her, it comes again and again and again. There's no ending. It's, it's horrific. She has suffered. There was a lot of suffering in in that story. For any parent, knowing your child was killed, knowing that their last moments were they were scared, 
I can't imagine as a parent that, to hear that. And I'm sure you relive it and you think it through in your mind of what happened to them just by hearing that story. We should say that those suspects haven't been charged. And I think, you know, I'm going to let you speak to what did you think after talking to Dawn? I mean, this has totally uprooted her entire life. As much as there, I just hear hope in her voice. I've been talking to Dawn since 2019. You know, we've talked a couple times and I could tell that now's the time she's ready to talk because I feel like something is bubbling up for her that she's really has that hope for this year is going to be a year for answers. So I'm hoping that she's on the right track. And her and Kim have been working on some things and talking with the FBI. She keeps saying, I want to talk to you for a part two. So I feel like there's something that she really knows is going to be happening. She is working with somebody closely who is former law enforcement. Together, they have found out a lot of new information, a lot of information that is going to, according to them, be a game changer. She keeps hinting to the fact that they know things and that they know things that people don't know they know. There is a lot that needs to process through the system. And once it does, I think that they feel like answers are very, very close. And I hope they are. I really do hope they are. This is such a tragic, tragic story. But again, even as close as they are, they could still use anybody's help if you have any information. Or if you're out there and you're with Brittany and you would like to talk to Dawn, she would love to talk with you. You guys stay tuned because I think that one of our bonus episodes, our conversation with Dawn, she had a lot to say, a lot that you could read into. I think you guys would find interesting. But we are going to sign off for now but not before telling you thank you so much. And we are so excited that you're here for season two and we'll see you on the next one. And we want to thank Liz Morgan PR for being absolutely amazing and sponsoring us. Whether it's getting media attention, planning and executing a memorable event or creating a strategic plan for your organization. Liz Morgan PR has the knowledge, experience, creativity and connections to get the job done no matter the challenges. Liz Morgan PR is a boutique public relations firm specializing in media relations, event planning, and communication strategy. Founder, president, and friend, Liz Morgan is a creative award-winning public relations professional with one goal in mind, getting her clients buzz. Like us on Facebook at Cold Case Playing Cards for all the latest information on this case and other cards we'll be featuring on future episodes. Healing Justice is written, produced, and hosted by Jennifer Dubasak and myself, Lori Jennings. Our sound design is by John Schaub. Our executive consultant is the Cold Case Playing Cards creator, retired FDLE Special Agent Tommy Ray. If you want to help us spread the word about these victims' stories, please subscribe and leave us a positive review on your favorite podcast app. And tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you for listening and join us next time on Dealing Justice. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.